Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome back to the analysis.news. We'll be continuing our series of interviews with Tom Ferguson about just what happened in the 2020 elections and a perfect storm gathering in 2022. You could say for the Democrats, but for anyone that actually cares about climate, not that the Democrats are doing what they nearly what they should be doing about the climate crisis, but a re-election of climate deniers in Congress uh, ain't going to help matters very much. Uh, we'll be back in a few seconds with Tom's, Tom Ferguson. Please don't forget the donate button. I know it's coming to the year end and people are looking at their taxes. And some of you, I know a, a lot, not all of you, we've had several people that are giving five, ten bucks a month and have had to cancel their monthly subscriptions because they actually have lost jobs. They're, they can't pay rent. Uh, and I just got to say thank you to those people who were donating right up to the last possible time they could. Uh, but for those that are of you that are doing well, especially in the stock market and such, uh, and you're looking at donating some money, we are a 501c3 in the U.S. And if you're not in the U.S., well, maybe you could donate anyways. Uh, we'll be back in a few seconds. So thanks again, joining us for part three of our series with Tom Ferguson, based on a paper he wrote together with Paul Jorgensen and Ji Chen. Title of the paper, which can be found on INET's website, is The Knife Edge Election of 2020, American Politics Between Washington, Kabul, and Weimar. It's an interesting title. Here's a quote from the paper. The case of agriculture is more complicated. No search for answers to the question of how Trump amassed more than 74 million votes can bypass this sector, which only a very small number of specialized media sources paid attention to around the time of the election itself. As will shortly become obvious, by 2019, Trump's offsets to the consequences of his tariffs on agriculture were morphing into a much grander shift in farm policy swamping the tariff controversies. And then chapter five of the paper is titled The Ace in the Hole That Almost Worked, Trump's Farm Policy. Here again, still more, still more advanced cautions are necessary. I'm still quoting from the paper. Next to finance and perhaps to defense, one might argue agriculture constitutes the most important case of full-throated socialism within the American economy. My, I don't think Fox News would be happy with that characterization, but there's a lot of truth to that. Federal government subsidies over long periods have played a vital role in the industry's rise to world dominance and state and remains ubiquitous. It is also noteworthy that the usual intense partisanship in American politics often seems to stop at the farm belt. Close inspection will reveal a more discriminating picture, but the frequency within which farm state Republicans and Democrats close ranks in favor of lavish aid for big farmers, giant grain companies, specialized insurers, and other firms in the agricultural sector is obvious. But this paper cannot review the tangled history. We must pass rapidly to how the Trump administra administration engineered one of the most remarkable agricultural political business cycles in American history. Now joining us is Tom Ferguson. He's the research director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking and a professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Thanks for joining us again, Tom. Hi, glad to be here with COVID. There's always options that I'm still around, so thank you. Yeah. 
All right. So so pick this up. What this this issue of agricultural policies and certainly in most mainstream media has received no attention at all. Yeah, right. Nothing. Uh, the only thing you ever hear about is, you know, when Obama rejected Howard Dean's proposal to uh, build democratic uh, outreach in, you know, all the states on a big way and things like that. Well, um, we stumbled into this one. And it was basically, I mean, if you read uh, the, the literature on Trump, there is a vast uh, literature on international trade and what he did with it, because he was definitely not conducting normal free trade politics, even with all the many qualifications to existing free trade. I mean, this was the most protectionist American administration in decades. Um, and that generated an enormous amount of commentary, although note that very little of that actually reaches into the election analysis uh, commentary in the major media. It's like people, it's a, it's a very strong case where folks, that discourse is dominated entirely by, almost entirely by race and gender. And, you know, the trade stuff just falls out, even though you take, you look even 15 degrees away from the election commentary and you see a vast literature uh, around the world uh, on this. And so we started, we were first interested in whether claims that were made that the trade policy didn't really affect the election that much were true. Okay, let me let me just quickly add this. First and foremost is about uh, trade uh, tariffs and such against China and part of Trump's whole anti-China rhetoric. And there's a lot of speculation at the time this could undermine him in these rural districts. But later, people didn't talk about it much. Yeah, right. There were, I remember a New York Times piece that was pushing the line that farmers were going to revolt. There were a lot of those. I, I would add, though, that the tariffs were not just on China. They hit many European countries uh, and countries also outside of Europe, you know, Korea, for example. And Canada. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> Our NATO ally, as they would say. Um, well, anyway, so... Uh, the question was, did this matter in the end or not? And the sort of short answer is we finally concluded, like a lot of other people, no, it didn't matter a lot, uh, hardly at all, because when you actually, I mean, partly because so many of them came off, they were put on in a, uh, although there's a, it's not true that the Trump people didn't think about their trade policy. Uh, Lighthatzer and Robert Lighthatzer and others were certainly thinking a lot about it. I, I wouldn't. But um, when they implement policy, on the other hand, it's almost pure Trump. It's quite slapdash, uh, one would say transactional. And you, you see, uh, as a number of people have noted, just amazing uh, changes between what the public announcement is, what's finally implemented. And most of them come off fairly fast uh, after um, the 2019, 2018, 2019 um big rises okay um so we that but in the process it directed our attention to what was going on with the u.s exports to china of which agricultural products were large they weren't oh in general it's not true to claim that you know they, like the whole health of u.s agriculture depended on exports to china that's not true but for some crops soybeans for example corn silage few others they really did matter um, and so 
Yeah, you know, uh, sort of like uh, an explorer going up the uh, mountains in some place and seeing this territory that, you know, our colleagues had not discuss really discussed much at all. And we said, all right, let's take a look at agriculture. So we reached out to agriculture and department and nobody wanted to talk about anything there. Eventually, we could sort of piece things together. The Trump people began by uh trying to do special programs to compensate in agriculture for the loss of the chinese exports though that then morphed as covid hit um into a much broader agricultural bailout because suddenly the farm belt was being hit not just in certain areas where the chinese exports mattered but they were being hit very generally i mean just huge amounts of commercial sales that you know restaurant sales under covid it's it's no secret were not particularly um high um and so they turned it into a general agricultural bailout and they did that with a series of programs now we found a way finally to analyze that but because we were using again county level data uh that was quite a, a research challenge but you know people can read the paper if they want but here's what we found out which is in very straightforward which is that trump just kept pouring money into this it, i mean people in agriculture we have some we looked at the literature and the news for agricultural uh agricultural specific news agencies and things like that news centers and people did quite often catch on to this. It just didn't make it into the general media very much. There were a couple of things where it did, but nobody followed it up. You didn't see any talking headed on election night or after that talking about it either. Uh, but in the end, yeah, it was a gigantic bailout on a colossal scale. Um, I would accept the figures quoted by the economists that we cite in the paper. They have yeah, probably the largest agricultural political business cycle, to speak loosely, in American history. Um, and, you know, the great revolt against Trump in the farm belt that people thought they were going to see uh didn't happen now not everybody got the benefits of this there were very clear political targeting uh there like they left the apple producers pretty much out of it when you looked at the apple producers they knew it and they were really complaining um there uh they left some others out but we, it, it really it clearly helped keep up what um you know the paper's theme is the in no small part, it's the peripheral areas of the United States, peripheral meaning out of the cities and often out of even the bigger suburbs. The Trump vote there is is known to be strong. We're not the first to observe it. Um, but we go on to then just look at an interesting case. And this is really quite worth understanding because it, it is a warning against the shallowness of so much political commentary. I mean, put simply, you have all kinds of people. Thomas Piketty, who should know better, uh, keeps telling you that education really settles votes uh, in um, most advanced industrial states and certainly in the United States. Um, and the New York Times and many other places have picked that up. The big story, it is said, is the educational divide. Well, you know, there's something superficially to that because of the way income is evolving over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years. Um, but 
it, when you look a little bit beneath that, you see something else. It is extremely interesting to look at what happens in like huge numbers of Midwestern states over time. Once upon a time in the during the High New Deal, they were nearly all for Roosevelt on the far on the combination of the farm program and uh, bluntly the spread of labor unions and industrial towns. Um, what you see all over America, though, and it particularly hits those states uh, in the farm areas, you used to have a viable Democratic Party. In the late New Deal, that, that coalition started to decay. It got weaker, but it didn't disappear. Um, and, you know, when I, I, I grew up in Ohio, actually, for a good chunk of my uh, youth, and the Democrats were not out of the story there. You could put together, when you go back and look at it, which I think would be worth doing in a little more detail, but um, you could see that smaller farmers uh, tended to vote, I think, Democratic, and you could get coalitions of them, certain crops, because the crop issues in these areas, in all farm areas, really matter to a much larger degree than just bigger, small farmers often. Um, but you, you could see then uh, the labor vote in cities, in, in you know, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Iowa even, uh, Indiana, those were very substantial. Now, what happens in the 1980s, 90s, and after is that the labor unions are blown away and the whole manufacturing sector gets hit. Um, and, you know, no doubt at all that relocation of plants, imports, and technological change combine. And you can see huge numbers of people trying to sort of spend all their time sorting those three out instead of keeping their eye on the big problem, which is the disappearance of high paying jobs uh, there. But so you, you blow out uh, with industrial change, not educational change. I mean, trying to understand this as a problem in education is simply crazy. I mean, it's like, it's like, that's just not the problem. It's a genuine industrial problem uh, of transformation. And similarly, in the farm areas, you know, we document in there how uh, vastly the farm sector changes. And in particular, you know, the most profitable farming now is done overwhelmingly by large, generally family-owned farms. Um, and they got a huge amount of the uh, though those the family owned here doesn't mean mom, dad, and the kids living on one farm. It means they own a whole bunch of farms and things like that. Um, and then there are all these players that come in, uh, not only banks, insurance companies, crop seed companies. I mean, there's a big technological change there. You find some political scientists talking about how, well, this is a pluralism is going to work now this is all pluralism among very big interests and the short blunt fact of the matter is is that farming is today really dominated by a relatively relative handful of large farmers all over uh, and that leads us to our sort of really interesting conclusion as you study like for example covid patterns of illness and things meat packing has moved out of cities into the peripheral areas in many cases the workforce for those areas are either black or hispanic um, they were devastated in meat packing by covid but more generally they sometimes try to strike 
because um, if they because the federal government under Trump was doing absolutely nothing to protect them. Uh, and uh, under Biden, it's been less than adequate, I, I, I'd say, but uh, they've at least done a few things. But, you know, some people have no recourse but to just strike. Um, now, I, I, can, I, we, can I interrupt here for a second? Sure. As you say, in meatpacking and some of the more labor intensive jobs became more dangerous during COVID. And Trump, if there's one thing, as your paper points out, that actually did sink Trump in the end, because he might have won otherwise, repeating the 2016 pattern of vote. But COVID really, in the end, sunk him. On the other hand, nobody was more damaged by COVID than Hispanic and black workers. And yet his vote went up amongst Hispanics, particularly, but even amongst black men. Uh, how the, how the hell did that happen? Short, blunt answer is that a very substantial. Now, first of all, I, I should say I think you can put the basic elements of the answer straightforwardly. That that paper doesn't try to do that. Uh, I mean, there are just limits. You know, hey, it's only fifty pages. <laughs> it's a basic thing. We're not. We may turn it into a book, but we're not trying to write a novel. Uh, at least right then. Um, but First of all, a large number of those workers are almost certainly not U.S. citizens. Um, I mean, trying to get a handle on that is hard. Uh, it's the famous difference between voting age population and voting eligible population uh, in the uh, U.S. Uh, states. Uh, but those are pretty large differences. Beyond that, I think you'll find in the rural areas the whole weight of the legal structure is generally working on the side of the large farmers. So I, my suspicion is, this is a guess, I mean, but it, I think you'll find uh, large numbers of the workers are uh, operating without American citizenship, not necessarily illegally, I, I would observe. Um, but they don't, they're not American citizens, so they can't vote. Um, and then I think a turnout depression uh, in the rural areas where they are concentrated, not everywhere else, I think is likely uh, to happen. Um, and uh, so that's, if you like, the exclave character of this probably really matters. Uh, but that's a bet. Um, and, you know, it's well worth asking, you know, how do the Democrats plan to win rural areas? I mean, that you, you there are large numbers of workers out there, including white workers, I would note, um, who, you know, they've lost jobs. Many of the, the there's it's no secret that these types of peripheral uh, areas see a good deal more drug dependency of various types, uh, opiates and things. Um, but um, I, I, their question of how the Democrats build a majority there, if they're not going to seriously embrace unionization um, in the rural areas, is a, is well worth asking. And you know that you you have this old impression of the Democrats as favoring agricultural unions. That's really derived from Robert Kennedy and company in the '60s in California. You know, farm unionization is now just a micro portion of the agricultural workforce. And huge numbers of people we know, especially in California, just come in, you know, under programs from other countries. 
Um, so what are the Democrats going to do about this? I'm not clear that they have uh, any desire to pick up here. Yeah, I think they when when the, when they encounter districts that are uh, a quote unquote a Republican lock, they don't even try. Uh, they, they just move on. They don't want to. They don't want to spend money on. Okay, let me let me ask you another question. Uh, the uh, what you said off the top about one of the most socialistic things the government does is these massive farm subsidies. Uh, first of all, it's not really going to small farmers, as you said. The vast majority. Yeah, the, yeah, there are hardly any left. Yeah, that's, that's, and this, Paul, the agricultural extension programs, which are really important, they're major. You have to think of these as a sort of special form. There's a great paper by Lou Furliger and Bill Lozonic on this, which just treats it as, hey, here was America's first developed in industry in the sense of in, in industry blank, including agriculture. Uh, this was a developed uh, success in world markets. That's right. But the bulk of that research, as a number of folks have emphasized, they, it, it's a backstop for large farmers. Um, it, it does not work well for poor farmers at all. So big agriculture, because that's what it is, a big industrial agriculture gets subsidies. And of course, the other sector that gets tremendous subsidies, particularly under Trump, although Biden claims he's going to undo them, but I'm not sure that he actually has, is fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, and, and those sectors obviously really went to bat for Trump. But uh, you talk about how it, it emerged as even a, a more consolidated pro-Republican bloc, perhaps, than even in the past. Well, all right. I, look, I will tell you, because I've actually done the research, like I've, I've read a lot of bank papers. And you will find in the early 20th century, I mean, I remember a quote from one Morgan partner who was just saying, let's face it, you know, we win elections by... he was, it's sort of insane, but it's true. This particular guy was a voting Democrat. I've dealt with that stuff and some stuff on the New Deal. I'm not going there now. But he was just basically saying, look, the Republican Party is really funded by urban business interests that's, that, that then uh, make alliances with the farmers. And I can tell you this. I remember this story very well because I, <laughs> I won't say quite how I first encountered this, but um when uh standard oil of new jersey tried to get control of the texas legislature what they did is i hired a very famous texan to go out and put all the rural legislators in business um which he did and that that guy later became lyndon johnson's ambassador to australia and his some student who was his intern took a class from me to I actually talked about this. He took it back to Clark, who said, oh, yeah. <laughs> According to the student, I have no direct uh, ever with Ed Clark. Anyway, um, yeah, this type of uh, stuff is uh, like the essence of conservative American politics, but it's also the essence of modern conservative politics all over uh the developed world uh, in same story in austria germany france and spain you know when the americans were uh trying to export their version of democracy to spain i happen to know they helped subsidize a string of uh public choice i think they call it in the literature folks who went over to spain to help write the constitution one of those folks told me how they had uh, overrepresented the rural areas in there. 
More broadly, we should pick up on this because I just saw this sort of thing put by very earnest people in the New York Times the other day, which is a tendency to sort of say America's in a crisis because it has a very old constitution that um, focuses on like it over represents um, small states with relatively few people. Uh, and they could, and then we'll often add, you know, and they're not urban. Uh, and that's true. Um, and they're, th that's absolutely true. But what you actually have here is a swarming money and politics problem in which these 200-year-old rules, uh, if you like, get hit by a tidal wave of money. Uh, and then the whole landscape gets reshuffled. If you didn't have that tidal wave of, of political money, you get very different outcomes, I am sure. Um, and it's, it's just when you read about how the problem is to sort of change the rules, uh, you need to remember the biggest rule you need to change is the, are the ones about political money. Uh, and if an essay doesn't have political money in it, don't take it seriously, no matter how earnest and well-intentioned it is uh, about like the mere problem of democracy. You can't have a seriously democratic modern state if you cannot control political money. If you look at who owns big agriculture, and you look at who owns fossil fuel, and you look at who owns almost everything that's on a stock exchange, a, a major component, if not majority, obviously comes right back to the financial sector. And the financial sector seems to, they, they have these two parties like horses where in some, and sometimes it serves their interest to put the money into Republicans in the rural area because they also have investments in agriculture. Another time it puts, they'll put their money over here on the Democrats. But the role of the financial sector, and I'm not saying this is some monolithic cabal that has everything perfectly planned out. And a lot of it happens, you know, spontaneously. There's different personalities but the, but on the whole, the financial sector is actually is what's behind all of these sectors, and they play this political game as it suits them. Well, my only quarrel with that is, hey, finance, Silicon Valley, the the defense, sure. I mean, otherwise, I'd say, look, I'm sorry to sort of, and I actually hate book promotion. I just can't stand people. But I did write a book about this. You know, <laughs> <and all>. I mean, <laughs> Go ahead, promote the book. No, no, we're not. Let's get, let's change the subject. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't disagree with this. In fact, you can see very plainly uh, just how I, I do think that one major consideration in the days leading up to January 6th was the feeling in the business community, no, they don't want to be stuck with Donald Trump and a kind of authoritarian, uh, you know, Cadillo style, or uh, we will not go to the German terms for that, um, or the Italian terms. Uh, they didn't want that kind of a regime. They got a perfect system right now where these guys come and go. They're mostly guys, but the women have now gotten into the act too in a big way. You only have to look at Gino Raimondo yesterday on or the other day on uh, European Union restraints on American uh, Silicon Valley firms to realize the women are in it too. Um, the um, 
you know, and they, that system works for them. That's why I, I am not among those who think the natural tendency of, you know, political systems uh, in the modern world is necessarily, they are authoritarian, but they're not strong, if you'll allow the expression here, well, strong man or strong woman, that, we have yet to see that really. Um, that that's not where the that's not everybody in the business community's first choice. Let these people take the fall. You get this whole uh, magic theater. Um, I mean, it's like Hollywood. Uh, it's almost Hollywood in spades, and it appears to be real. Well, well, so so far, I I agree with you. So far, that's the case. The American elites, they don't want one sector of the elite to become so much more powerful than the rest of them. And, and, and it's, uh, you know, there's so many multimillionaires and so many billionaires in such a big corporate sector. They don't want a little cabal around Donald Trump to get extraordinary power, even if they get all their, uh, what they want. Like Larry Fink said that Trump gave, uh, filled the entire bucket list of BlackRock. Uh, on the other hand, he, BlackRock and the others had had enough of Trump, especially after he didn't want to have a peaceful transferring of power. But they had more or less had enough of him in the lead up to the election. They certainly had not had enough of the Republican Party, as you pointed out. Um, th that said, they don't want some ultra centralized authoritarian type of power in the U.S., at least now. But I had I had dinner with you, uh, God, it must be two years ago or more in New York, and Certainly I asked you. Before uh, COVID, <laughs> it was before COVID, not not too long before COVID, actually. And what did and I, I say? I, then? <laughs> well, I, 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 I asked you a question. You know, this is the primaries were still on. Bernie Sanders was doing well. Elizabeth Warren was still in play, and I said, if if the elites have to choose between a real wealth tax that Sanders and Warren were talking about or a real increasingly authoritarian, even almost a kind of, you know, they have this socialism with Chinese characteristics, so fascism with American characteristics. They might choose fascism with American characteristics over a serious wealth tax. And you thought that's kind of where they were at. They wouldn't ha allow a real assault on their wealth. They, they, they would go for an authoritarianism first. All right, Paul, but since you're now uh, bringing that subject up and look at what happened, out popped like a jack-in-the-box one Joseph Biden. Yeah. Um, and that was the end of Sanders and Warren uh, as presidential aspirant. You know, so... Um, what can I say? Now you there's still still some, if you like, life in the system uh, from that uh, somewhat demented perspective. Uh, and look, you know, it's not just a question about wealth taxes, right? I mean, the business community is not willing to accept even a modest rise in the income tax that uh, Biden proposed. I mean, it's really crazy. Well, some of them are. There seems to be a split. I mean, this BlackRock guy is a senior advisor to Biden. I mean, some of the financial sector did seem, at least earlier on, willing to accept a certain amount of tax rise. Uh, but they really don't like all the other stuff. Uh, they don't want increased regulation. And maybe the most important thing, and this is, I keep asking this question, uh, how can they possibly 
understand the urgency of climate and keep pouring money into a party of climate deniers and let them you know, retake Congress. Well, of course, that's where things start to split. More of the, um, yeah, this gets fairly complicated, but I, I, I begin by uh, observing that I, I, I want to still insist, to my knowledge, no major business association in the United States has been willing to support the Biden tax plan. Um, and and uh, there are some folks who are willing to see parts of um, some stuff even on in regard to climate, but nothing else. And the personal income, there's no constituency there uh, in the business community at all. I mean, it also talk is cheap. There is this kind of funny uh, la uh, leading two year cycle and a four year cycle with where we all talk big uh before the election after the election um you know the talk fades and then they actually have to go make policy that has misled people into talking about the difference between election and governing coalitions and things like that it's usually the same folks if you actually look i mean because i actually do look um um but um anyway so what can i say yeah it's um if you're thinking that you're going to be rescued by a uh, far-seeing business community, well, you're not, uh, which may actually bring us to a, a very interesting discussion of where Biden is headed. I mean, I don't know whether he will get his cut down, uh, we'll call it the human capital bill, uh, that is pending in Congress out or not, you know, President Manchin, to, uh, one might say. Uh, hasn't yet come down hard. He's been signaling, ah, he will hold it up till January. You know, who knows? They may get it out. It's been it's been so truncated at this point. It's a severe loss, as you indicated earlier. Um, but you know that means, uh, and and we have we are sliding into a situation partly not of the administration's making. I, I, in, in, involving both, you know, economics and foreign policy, but also heavily influenced by them in both, in which you've got whole new ranges of pressures on ordinary people, and they need to move with that. I mean, the, we, I think, briefly discussed inflation before. You know, it is my slogan on this, uh, and I think all the latest numbers just reinforce that. We don't have a wage price spiral. We have a price wage spiral. I mean, it is perfectly obvious. Now, Elizabeth Warren made some statements that, you know, some parts of the business community took exception to. Um, you could rephrase what she said in terms of price theories, uh, which is that a lot of these folks, particularly the people using algorithms and the widespread application of computer models to sort of do pricing and there are a lot of companies experimenting with that those folks have learned um how to do prices in a lot of changing conditions and so when you suddenly give them uh they they are confronted with a supply shortage which they didn't necessarily make uh they know how they learn real fast how to take advantage of it um and um so, you know, I'm not very surprised to find that, you know, everybody's noticing the way business profits are soaring. Um, the administration's going to have to deal with this. There have been some folks trying to argue that low wage employees got some raises. They did. They were also given very substantial 
aid in the early phases of the Biden reign. But that's over now, or nearly all. I mean, the, even the um, uh, <clears throat> most of the health care provisions, emergency provisions, they're gone. People are having to pick up a lot more bills. Um, and, you know, we haven't solved the COVID problem. Uh, we haven't done much of, uh, we haven't solved much of anything. And it is now hitting, you've got, in effect, COVID without the emergency provisions that tied at the population over for the first two years. And they have just, they've actually handed out money to schools, but not done the kind of implementation and guidance that they need for things like ventilation. And so now that, a lot, the Republicans are trying to tie inflation to the subsidies. But my understanding is the majority of the at least half of inflation is coming from the rise in fossil fuel. The other big part is supply chain issues. It has, very, has next to nothing to do with either the earlier COVID subsidy or the increase in wages. Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah. I don't believe that anybody's subsidy uh, under the COVID thing did very much. The only thing it did do, you could say this, if you got a supply chain uh, problem and in goods, you know, the, the service problem is you, you'll, if you try to do your service, you may catch COVID. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a different story. Um, that's, <clears throat> but if you're, to the extent you're trying to buy goods and you have a service problem and you've got some money saved, um, then you can see an explosion of, People trying to buy, I'm going to make it up, uh, Christmas toys or something, and they can't get them. I mean, now that that's a, a very, it's a limited but real uh, demand pull story, which uh, companies that can take advantage of their ability to price will take advantage of. Um, and that's, that's a fair, but that's, you know, fix that by making everybody poor. Okay, let me let me just one final question because we're getting near the end. Is there anything Biden, number one, the Biden administration can do to reverse this 2022 perfect storm? And what should the progressive Democrats, you know, in and out of Congress be saying any perhaps differently than they are? Okay, well, the Biden folks finally did something that, you know, I was calling for. I can't even point you to interviews, right? Just said these people should be opening the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And then, you know, it didn't for one day. There were guys saying, well, this didn't do anything. In fact, it did. Prices are down. You've got to make speculation on, the, on both food and oil not a one-way bet. Um, and they should have moved. Uh, this is, again, to pick up a theme I, I was emphasizing for some months. They need uh, to put some position limits in the speculative. Um, that was my next question. How much is speculation on commodities forcing prices up? Hard to tell, but you can be sure when it's all one way bet, the whole world gets into that. I, I always remind people of what happened when AIG had to liquidate after it you know, had to be bailed out there by the U.S. government. It was told to liquidate its entire portfolio. I think it was just agriculture. Um, and the, every price in the planet crashed that day for a while because they had so much of it. Um, the, no, they, they should have been on that actually quite some time ago. And they're finally getting to work on, uh, they have made some moves to make specific sectors uh, sort of clean up their acts a bit to make them function better. They're slow on that. I would have militarized the ports. I would not have... Uh, sat around waiting for months and uh, people, now to be fair, they did try to do some things and they did help. I do think the supply side 
stuff uh, will probably get better next year um, a bit um, so that they could hope for some improvement just by that. But they need uh, they, they need to pick up on this problem of how are they going to support people while they haven't mastered COVID. Uh, I think that's a real problem. Okay, well, let me let me final final question is a it's not related to the paper, but this reluctance to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate. I mean, the Senate is so fundamentally undemocratic. It's a ridiculous institution. I mean, they shouldn't even be hosting. I mean, there's so many reasons Biden should not be hosting a democracy conference. But one of them is the stupid structure of the Electoral College and the Senate. There's nothing, you know, you can't get more undemocratic than both of those institutions. Uh, that being said, if they don't deal with this issue of the filibuster in the Senate, what happened to Obama is going to happen to Ob uh, Biden. And is it is it simply the financial sector who are the backers of uh, the Democratic Party don't want this? There was a I think it was the Intercept released a phone call, a transcript of a phone call between Joe Manchin and his some of his donors. And in it, the donors were asking, telling Manchin, make sure they don't change the filibuster rules. Yeah, but I mean, look, this brings us back to the, you know, the corporate Democrats are bigger than finance. Telcom uh, and Silicon Valley and defense folks are to be found there in abundance. That, that's, and it just in general, yes, conservative business interests, if you like, generally love the filibuster. It was... Um, and and the whole design of the Senate, yeah, because that if you got a lot of money, it sort of like economizes. You don't have to buy the whole place; you just buy the um, small states enough to block it. It's much easier that small way. rural states, and you control the country. Yeah, but you you got to you should appreciate. I mean, one has to be appreciative of Biden's problem, which they couldn't get on the abolition of the filibuster through the Senate. I think we are moving to this situation. It's basically what happened when Franklin Roosevelt's first New Deal collapsed. Uh, I mean, the whole first package of the New Deal, like the, Re the National Recovery Act and things like that, in the spring and summer of 34, it all went to pieces and you know, it was eventually voided by the Supreme Court. But the support it had initially attracted among both business and the rest of the population had already dissolved. I wrote about this in that old Normalcy, the New Deal paper that's in Golden Rule and, and, and the old um, International Organization article. Um, but the thing is, you know, the what then happened, the pre I mean, I, I saw this myth of the strong president speaking to people being put out in the New York Times just the other day. That's not what happened. What actually happened was uh, the AFL uh, split, the CIO formed, uh, and people went out on strike in large numbers, and many other organizations actually then rose up. Now, there were major developments where, as uh, business, the business community had to choose, particularly over free trade and protection, where the free traders would come over and the whole oil industry um, got a big boost from the way Roosevelt picked up on the um, Conley Hot Oil Act. Some, the bottom line is they kept the price system that was installed in the NRA for the oil industry for a generation, actually. I wrote that one. I mean, that's, that's just a point I keep emphasizing, and people just don't want to talk.
talk about it. I mean, but the industry, it, 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 like bluntly, it wasn't presidential leadership that brought you the second New Deal. It was the organization of the population that changed the power equation and in, including reacting back into the business community. You know, if something like that doesn't happen, um, unless a miracle happens and you can somehow unsnarl all the supply shortages. I mean, because I think the economy will grow pretty reasonably uh, next. I mean, you're, you're still looking at very high real rates of growth because you're coming back. But COVID keeps stopping. You get this stop-go pattern. And now you, you get people even actually claiming, well, you know, uh, we it's not as though COVID's the worst thing that happened. No, well, that's in effect the trade-off between profits and COVID. They should be pretty clear about that. Uh, but uh, no, I think the, the the failure of the progressive movement to a very large extent, I could never understand why they didn't bird dog worker safety more than they did. They did push to push to put um, on the Biden COVID folks to make OSHA with, to represent it. Somebody from OSHA represented there. I know because I pushed on that indirectly through a bunch of people and that really happened. Uh, but um, it, it, you just do not see the leadership uh, on COVID policy coming from the press. It's like they just sit there uh, while oh, the, the Biden administration stonewalls on the world getting vaccinated. It's cutting, in my opinion, too. It's being too nice to uh, the vaccine companies. It um, and it's making some pretty fundamental errors. And like they should move to get some good data collection. They can't even really tell you who has what kinds of uh, COVID where. They're, they're, they have ramped up their testing, but nowhere near what they should have. I could go on about this. Where were the progressives? Yeah, we, we, we did talk about this in the earlier segment. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, we'll, we'll pick yeah. this up again soon. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, just a quick answer. We're still looking at this perfect storm in 2022. Uh, yep. A perfect storm could sink all boats. <laughs> Sorry to say. No. All right. Thanks, Tom. Yep. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget it's the end of the year. If you're thinking about donating some money, we are a 501c3 in the U.S., and uh, if at any rate we could certainly use your help, please subscribe and spread and share and all, all the rest. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.